for individuals in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And we've been taking time the last several weeks to look at these individuals that just got honorable mention in Hebrews chapter 11, and this morning we come to David. Now, it's really hard to tell David's whole story in this context because I was surprised to find out that there are 66 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to the life of David. So I just want to touch on a few highlights. And this morning, I want us to go back to 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17 to the very first occurrence where we find David in the Bible And it contains the familiar story of how God chose David and how David defeated Goliath. Now, I'm going to assume that you already know this story. So I'm not going to go through the details of the story. Instead, I just want to pick out some application points for us. What I want to do this morning is pick out six principles or six steps in how to kill a giant. Now, if you're sitting here this morning wondering what that has to do with you, stick around. Point number one, start with your heart. We've looked at four individuals in Hebrews 11.32. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. They were all judges. After the period of the judges, Israel cried out to God for a king like all the other nations. God was really their king, but they wanted a tangible king. And so God gave them someone like what they were looking for. He he gave them someone who looked like a king. His name was Saul. In fact, 1 Samuel 10, 23 says he stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. You could tell the king was coming because he was taller than everyone else. He was a big, strapping, strong, kingly-looking guy on the outside. But he wasn't kingly on the inside. He kept compromising and disobeying God until finally God said to him, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you. And so he sent Samuel to the little city of Bethlehem to select a successor to Saul among the sons of Jesse. And Jesse brought his sons in before Samuel. And in verse 6 of chapter 16, we read, When they entered, he, Samuel, looked at at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, he brings in the firstborn son, Eliab, and this is a guy who looked like he belonged on the cover of GQ magazine. And Samuel said, this guy looks like a king. He must be the guy. And God said, that's not the guy. And so Jesse brought in his nextborn son, Abinadab, and Samuel said no, and he brought in his next... Shammah, and he said no, and he brought in each one of his sons, and he kept saying no, and finally, Samuel had to ask Jesse, have you got any more children? And he says, I've got one more. He's the youngest. He's he's the runt of the litter, and he's out taking care 
of the sheep. You see, David's dad didn't even bring him in before Samuel because he didn't think that he was kingly material. And then look at verse 12. It says, So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now you kind of expect him to come in and have warts all over himself. But he comes in and we're told he's got beautiful eyes, he's handsome, and he's ruddy. Now ruddy is kind of a hard word to interpret. Ruddy can mean he's kind of reddish. It can also have the idea of peach fuzz, which probably both ideas are true. He was kind of reddish, but he was just a young boy. He, he, he didn't even, he just, he didn't have a beard yet. He just had peach fuzz on his face. And God said, that's my man. Now, why did God choose David? We'll turn back a, a few chapters to 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14. Here's Samuel telling Saul that he's no longer going to be king. And in chapter 13 and verse 14, he says, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Have you ever thought what it means to be a man after God's own heart? That's an interesting study. Obviously, there's a contrast here between Saul and the man after God's own heart. And I think it'd be a good study to go and look at Saul's life and look at David's life and compare the difference between the two because I think it would reveal to us what it is to have a, a heart after God's own heart. But I just wrote down a couple things. I, you know, Saul's life was characterized by partial obedience under a veneer of spirituality. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, God told him to go and wipe out all of the Amalekites. And what did he do? He spared the king and he spared the best of the animals. Partial obedience. In David, we see a heart that was sane, even though it wasn't always true. He wasn't perfect. He did a lot of things that were wrong, but he was saying, God, I want my heart to be completely given over to you. I want to live for you completely. I want to serve you completely. I want to love you completely. That's a man after God's own heart. When Saul was, when he sinned and was confronted, you know what he did? He made excuses. He said, the people did it. And then when that didn't fly, he said, well, I, I kept the best of the animals so that I could sacrifice them to the Lord. When he sinned and was confronted, he made excuses. When David sinned, even though it was a much greater sin, and he was confronted, what did he do? He repented and turned from his sin. Saul was a people pleaser. If you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, it tells us in verse 30, even when he sinned and got caught, his first response was to Samuel, Honor me before the people. Don't, don't let the people find out what I've done. He was a people pleaser. David was a God pleaser. When David sinned and got caught, what did he do? He wrote psalms 
telling us about it because he was concerned about pleasing the Lord. Saul was a man after people's heart. David was a man after God's heart. And that principle comes out in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 where we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wouldn't you agree with that? We tend to look at outward appearance. We can size somebody up pretty quickly and and think we know everything about them. And what is God looking at? God's looking at the heart. Please get this. In God's eyes, outward appearance has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not God can use you. In fact, I would say that sometimes if people have good looks and physical abilities, it's harder for God to use them because they get pride in those things. If you're going to be a giant killer, don't start with your abs. Don't start with your physique. Don't start at the mirror. Start with your heart. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You want to be a giant killer? It starts right here. Give your heart completely to the Lord. Step number two, be patient in your training. David gets anointed king, and what does he do? Well, he goes right back out and he takes care of his flock. In fact, look at chapter 16 and verse 19. It says at the end of the verse, send me your son David who is with the flock. Now, if you and I got anointed king, even if we're a little, little teenager, a young teenager, we might head straight over to the palace to tell Saul there's a new sheriff in town. David doesn't do that. He goes right back to the flock. Right back to taking care of the sheep, which is a rather humbling job. In fact, if you turn over to chapter uh, 17 and verse 28, His brother says to him in the middle of the verse, And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He didn't have a huge flock, he had a little flock. And he was belittled for the job that he was doing. He's anointed king, but he's doing this little mundane job. Now what's going on? Well, David is waiting for God's timing And David is going through God's training. You know what's going on out in the fields as David is taking care of the sheep? He is using that time to develop his relationship with God. In fact, if you notice in chapter 16 and verse 13, it says in the middle of the verse, And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Spirit of God came upon him. He's out taking care of the sheep, but he has a new attitude toward the Lord, and he's developing that relationship with the Lord. Fortunately, he didn't have a Walkman or an iPod, or we wouldn't have gotten the Psalms. 
David was out in the fields. What was he doing? He was having a relationship with God and he was writing psalms like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And not only was he doing that, but chapter 16 and verse 18 tells us he was a skillful musician and so he was out in the fields practicing his musical talent which God was going to use to actually get him to the palace. And not only that, but he was also being trained as a warrior. Look at chapter 17 and verse 34. David is in front of Saul and David says to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. That's pretty impressive. I might have said, it's just one sheep. What's a sheep here or there? He took care of his sheep and he killed a lion and a bear. Now what does that tell me? It tells me that the little giants, the lion and the bear, were preparing him for the bigger giant, Goliath. And where did that happen? Out in the field, in the mundane job of taking care of the sheep. You see, the little trials that you go through are God's way of training you for the bigger trials that you're going to go through. You may be saying, well, I seem to have battles everywhere I turn. Little battles, little battles, little battles. What's God doing? He's preparing you for a big battle down the road. Jesus said, he who is faithful in the little things will be faithful also in much. If you're not winning the little battles, don't think you're going to go up against Goliath. You have to be patient in God's training of you. And then David's out in the field one day and some messengers show up from Saul and they say, David, we want you to come to the palace because Saul has an evil spirit upon him and, and, and they decided they wanted somebody to come and play the harp for Saul to calm him down. And one young man said there, you know what, I heard a good harp player over in Bethlehem by the name of David. And they went and got David and they brought him to the palace so that when, when Saul was having problems, he would play the harp for him. And not only that, but verse 21 tells us at the end he was also his armor bearer. What's an armor bearer? That's somebody who carries his armor around. Now, David was way overqualified for this job. In fact, look at verse 18, chapter 16. Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior one prudent in speech and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. And he doesn't even mention the fact that he's also already been anointed as king. And what is his job? His job is to be Saul's personal armor bearer. He's like his caddy, carries his armor around for him. And he's his personal CD player. 
When he wants some music, he turns to David and says, play, and David play. Now, I'm sure it was frustrating to be around Saul because earlier in this chapter in verse 14, it says the Lord had departed from him. He wasn't a pleasant guy to be around. He had an evil spirit on him. When we get over into chapter 18, it tells us on two different occasions while David was playing the harp, Saul took his javelin and tried to kill him. You think you got a bad boss. Why did God put him in this situation? Training. What better way to learn how to be king than to sit and watch the current king function, even though he did a lot of things that weren't right? David was taking notes about how to be king. You see, if God is going to use you, you have to be patient in your training. Start with your heart. Stay in that lowly position. Wait for God's timing. Learn from God's training. Third step. Get to the battlefront. Now let me set the scene for chapter 17. Israel and the Philistines were arch rivals. And Israel was one up on the Philistines because they had won the last battle. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 14. God won by using Jonathan and an earthquake. But the Philistines decided that the war wasn't over, and so they gather again in battle array, only this time they have a different strategy. This time their strategy is that each army would have one representative to fight for the nation. The representative that won, that nation would won. The representative that lost, that nation would lose. And Goliath was the representative for the Philistines. Chapter 17 and verse 4 calls him a champion. And it says in verse 4 at the end that his height was six cubits and a span. Now, a cubit was the distance between your elbow and the tip of your finger. Mine is about 20 inches. Uh, A span was the distance when you spread out your hand between the tip of your thumb and the end of your little finger. Now, the average person, especially in that day, would be about 18 inches uh, for a cubit. So if you figure the 18-inch cubit that would make Goliath about nine feet nine. That means he barely could walk under the rim of a basketball goal. That means most of you in this room couldn't jump up and touch his hat. He was nine feet nine, and he was dressed to kill. Verse 5 says, He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor, which would be armor that was metal and leather sort of overlapped looking like fish scales, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. His armor weighed 120 pounds. Imagine that. And then verse 6, he also had bronze greaves on his legs or shin guards. If you're you're that tall, you've got to take care of your legs because guys will come up and start beating on your knees. So he's all protected down there and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And get this, the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's somewhere between 15 and 20 pounds. Now, 15 to 20 pounds sounds like something I would use for curls. This guy's got it on the end of his spear. Can you imagine 
a, a pole out there with that much weight and I'm going to pick it up. I couldn't even lift it. And that's his spear. And on top of that, it says he had a shield carrier in front of him in verse 7. And he was challenging Israel day after day to choose a man that would come out and fight him. In fact, the, the Philistines were on one mountain and Israel was on the other and there was a valley in between and that's where the battle between these two champions was to take place. And meanwhile, David is, according to verse 15, David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. He was not only harpist and and, and armor carrier for Saul, he was still taking care of the sheep for his dad, so he was going back and forth. And apparently when Saul goes to battle, he sends David home because David's too, too young to be in the battle. But if you look at verse 17, it says, Jesse said to David, I want you to take some quarter pounders with cheese, and I want you to go to the battle, and, and your three brothers are in the army, and I want you to take them this food and then I want you to observe what's going on and I want you to come back and give me a report on how the battle is going. And now look at verse 20 of chapter 17. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man... They fled from him and were greatly afraid. Now, I want you to notice that phrase in verse 22. David ran to the battle line. Now, this may seem rather obvious, but if you're going to kill the giant, you've got to be where the battle is. You will never have a victory unless you're in the battle. And the only way to be in the battle is to get to the battle line. There are a lot of Christians who never get to the battlefront. They are spiritually AWOL, absent without love. Now, verse 16 tells us that Goliath had been making this challenge morning and evening for 40 days. And verse 20 says that for those 40 days, Israel lined up for battle and shouted their war cry. They had a battle cry. I don't know what their battle cry was. I kind of imagine it was, give me an I, give me an S, give me an R, give me an A, give me an E, give me an L. What's a spell? Israel. They, they lined up in battle array. They made this war cry. And then when Goliath stepped out and said, come on down, they all ran away in fear. You know, there are a lot of Christians who line up and shout the battle cry. 
But instead of going into battle, they turn and retreat. I heard about a high school in Oklahoma where they consolidated the school district and did away with a football program. But the little high school loved to have pep rallies, so they kept having pep rallies even though they didn't have a football team. So every Friday, they would gather in the gym and shout, rah, rah, sis, boom, bah. But there was no game, no competition, no challenge. I fear that many of us treat worship services like that. We line up for battle and we shout and then we turn around and we run home in fear. If you're going to kill a giant, you've got to get to the battlefront. Fourth step. Identify the enemy. When David showed up and heard Goliath's threats, he knew that that was the enemy right in front of him. And he says at the end of verse 32, I'll fight him. Now again, let me say something that's real obvious. Before you ever succeed in battle, you've got to identify who your giant is. Now, let me help you with this. Your giant is not your mate. Your giant is not your teenager. If you're a teenager, your giant is not your parents, although you may view them as if they're big, hostile giants. Let me get more specific. Your giant is a sin problem. Your giant is the sin that so easily besets you. Your giant is the sin that threatens to dominate your life. It comes out daily in full battle array and dares you to take a stand against it. And it's an impressive foe. If you're honest, you are powerless against that mighty monster. I have a 17-pound cat. He catches mice, and whenever he catches a mouse, he never kills it right away. He, he, he beats it for a while, and then he lets it go. And the mouse kind of wanders off, and then he goes and catches it again because he loves the catch. He loves the capture. That's the way your giant wants to treat you. Now, what's your giant? Let me help you. For some of you, it may be the giant of lust or pornography. That may be your giant. He, he stands there every day and challenges you. Perhaps some of you have gone farther and you're enslaved by the giant of sexual immorality. 
wouldn't surprise me if some here are fighting the giant of homosexuality or the giant of alcohol or the giant of drug abuse. You say, you haven't got me yet. Well, how about the giant named greed that keeps you enslaved to your work and enslaved to your things? How about the giant of self-centeredness? That's a giant that wears a number of outfits. The outfit of self-pity, the outfit of jealousy, the outfit of anger, the outfit of pride. What's your giant? You see, if you're going to kill a giant, you've got to identify it. Look at chapter 17 and verse 28. It says, Now Eliab, his, older, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. Now, as a younger brother, I have said the words that David said in response many times. Verse 29, he says, What have I done now? I was just asking a question. But what I want you to see in this little episode, this little incident, is that Eliab is identifying the wrong enemy. He's standing on the battle line. Goliath is in front of him. And what's he doing? He's fighting with his brother. He's fighting the wrong enemy. Some of you think your wife is the enemy. She's not the enemy. Some of you think your boss is the enemy. He's not the enemy. Some of you think your brother is the enemy. He's not the enemy. You need to stop fighting the wrong battle and identify the enemy. Now let me add a warning. You need to identify the enemy from God's perspective. Don't let your enemy identify himself because he will always tell you half truths. Look at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine? Now he calls himself the Philistine. That's interesting. Now look over at verse 26. The end of that verse, David says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He says, I'm the Philistine. David says he's the uncircumcised Philistine. What was circumcision? That was a sign of a covenant, covenant relationship with God. And so what he's saying is, this guy is opposed to God. He's outside the blessings of God. He hates God. You see, if you're going to kill 
the Goliath in your life, you have to call it what God calls it. You will never conquer it until you see it from God's perspective. If you're calling your sin a kitty cat, you're going to pet it rather than kill it. And the world makes sin sound like it's, sound like it's not so bad today. You listen to the world and they say, well, everybody does it. And the consequences really aren't that great. It's not going to hurt you. What does God say? God says, I hate sin and it will destroy you. Take anger, for instance. The world calls it having a short fuse. In fact, the world says it's, it's healthy for you to vent your anger. God's word says being wrongfully angry toward another person is like murdering that person. And the Bible says we can and must control it. Take adultery. Maybe your giant is adultery. The, the, the world calls it having a fling or an affair. Sounds rather adventurous, rather exciting. The Bible calls it sin and tells us it will ruin lives and devastate families. Proverbs 7.27 calls her house the way of death. Take homosexuality. The world calls it being gay. The world calls it an alternative lifestyle. The Bible calls it perversion and an abomination to God. It's not sexual preference. It's sin. Take abortion. The Bible covers over that atrocity, or the, the world covers over that atrocity by calling it pro-choice. The Bible calls it murder. It's shedding innocent blood. Take alcohol addiction. The world calls it a disease and says you really can't help it. The Bible calls it drunkenness and a deed of the flesh in Galatians 5.21 from which you must repent. You see, whatever your giant is, you need to do what David did and call it what God calls it. Identify your enemy. Fifth step. Fight in God's strength. Look at verse 37, chapter 17. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, the training paid off. David had learned how God worked in his life through the lion and the bear, and now he has confidence before Goliath. And how can we tell that he's fighting in God's strength? Well, let me give you three things. Number one is his attitude. Israel was looking at this whole situation from their human vantage point. In fact, look at verse 25. The men of Israel said to David, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Have you seen Goliath? He's nine feet nine. They were looking at the situation from their human vantage point and they were overwhelmed by the giant. And Saul didn't help matters either. Look, look down at verse 33. 
And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. You're not able. You're too young. He's too experienced. You can't do it. Israel and Saul were looking at this situation from a human vantage point. But David, the man of faith, was looking at this situation from God's vantage point. Go back to verse 8 again. Here's Goliath speaking, and he says, Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? I'm the Philistine. You guys are the servants of Saul. Look at verse 26 at the end. David says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? I love that. He says, I'm the Philistine. David said, no, he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He says, you're the armies of Saul. You're the servants of Saul. He says, no, we're the armies of God. I'm not a servant of Saul. I'm a soldier of God. Israel compared Goliath to themselves and ran away. David compared Goliath to God and stepped forward. Saul and his men saw Goliath and thought, he's so big, we can't kill him. David saw Goliath and thought, he's so big, I can't miss him. What an attitude. When he stands before him in verse 46, notice what he says. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What an attitude. And then my favorite verse here is verse 48. It says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward him. I love that. He's standing out in front of the giant. This giant starts for him, and David is running into battle. He's so confident. What an attitude. But not only do we see that he's fighting in God's strength by his attitude, but also by his armor. Look back at verse 37. Last phrase of that verse. And Saul said to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. I have to say that Saul is pathetic. He's a foot taller than everyone else in Israel. He's the king. He should have been out there cutting Goliath's head off. Instead, he's sending David out. And he puts his armor on him. He trusts his armor as long as David's wearing it. Now Saul is a cultural believer. 
cultural believers go to church and believe in God, they know all the right religious cliches. Outwardly, they seem to be believers, but their faith is not personal and it's not practical because every time they face a problem, they run away and mouth religious cliches. Saul runs away, and when David says, I'll step out there, he says, may the Lord be with you. And then again, he shows where his trust really is. He says, you need to wear my armor. So he puts his armor on David. And that's the way cultural believers are. He's got armor, you need armor. So what we have to do here is use the latest worldly techniques and methods, and we'll send you out with the latest methods, and we'll attach some religious cliches, we'll throw in a few verses, and it'll all sound spiritual. And this is really comical, because, I mean, Saul is like a 52 long, and David's a 38 regular. So he puts his armor on David. David can't even walk in the armor, and so David takes the armor off and says, I think I'll just go in my shorts and my T-shirt. He had the right attitude. He had the right armor. And then notice his ammunition. Verse 40. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Have you ever wondered why he took five stones? He only used one. Some people say he took five stones because he thought he would miss with the first four. Others say, you know, David went out there and he, he, he took his sling and he, he slung his sling and the, and the rock was heading off into the air and God got a hold of it and brought it back and, and hit Goliath. Now, that, Goliath was a pretty tough target because he had armor everywhere except like right here for his eyes. So he had only one spot where he was vulnerable and that was right between his eyes. But I really believe that David was accurate with his sling. And the reason I say that is in Judges chapter 20 and verse 16, it says there were 700 left-handed men in the tribe of Benjamin who could sling a stone and hit a hare. I never knew that many southpaws who were accurate pitchers, but these guys were left-handed, and they could throw the stone and actually hit a hair. That tells me if David had a sling, I know that he was a marksman with his sling. You say, well, why did he take five stones? Why didn't he just take one? Well, I think the answer is found in 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 to 21, where it tells us that Goliath had four brothers. He killed Goliath, and he knew there were more to come. So he had four more stones in his pouch for the rest of the family. Which brings us to the last point, and that is finish the job. Now apparently, the stone didn't kill Goliath, it just stunned him. Look at verse 49. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. He's knocked out cold. Now, at this point, David could have done a touchdown spike with his sling and danced around and all those things, but he doesn't do that. 
He's going to finish the job. And look at verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He didn't have his own sword. He took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. I love the way the Bible puts that. He killed him and then cut off his head. Now, cutting off his head would have killed him too. But he's finishing the job. He's making sure that the job is done completely. And I think the lesson for you and me is don't maim your enemy. Don't knock out your enemy. Don't stun your enemy. Cut off his head. I love the picture in verse 57 of chapter 17. It says, So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Here's David. He's still holding on to, to the Goliath's head. That is the stance of a victor. Here's the head of my giant that's been tormenting me and taunting me. And I'm walking around with it in my hand. You see, he finished the job. But as I said earlier, Goliath had four brothers. So you have to realize that, that when you kill one giant, there's always another giant waiting in the wings. So you really can't completely finish the job. And that's why in the Bible we are told essentially to finish strong in our Christian life. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Paul doesn't say he's finished until he's writing the last book and the last chapter that he ever wrote. And that's when he says to us, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. How do you really finish? You don't just kill one giant. You have to kill other giants. You have to take on the battles of life. And when you get to the end of the road, then you can say, I have finished the course. How do you kill a giant? Start with your heart. Give it completely to God. Be patient in your training. God may have you in a situation you don't understand what's going on. It seems difficult. It's a mundane situation. It's not a very prestigious job. It's, not a, it's, it's, it's hard. Nobody's noticing. You're out in the field with the sheep and they stink. And it's not fun at all. God is training you for bigger things. Be patient in your training. Third, get to the battlefront. Don't shout the battle cry and run. Stay on the front lines. Identify the enemy. It's not your spouse and it's not your brother across the room. It's that sin that so easily besets you. Fifth, fight in God's strength. Have the attitude that says the battle is the Lord's. Use his armor and his ammunition and then finish the job. Cut his head off and finish strong. Let's pray.